Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this evening's Sybil Public Lecture. Before I introduce the speaker and the topic this evening, um, I've been instructed to remind everyone that for those of you who wish to tweet about this event in real time, there's a suggested hashtag put up here, LSE Foreign Bank. Okay. My name is Danny Kwa. In a minute, I will introduce the speaker for this evening, Sir Thomas Harris. But let me take a couple of minutes to contextualize this evening's event. I think all of us recognize that we are going through both a difficult and a novel time in the world economy. There are large global problems that confront us not just in the longer term, in terms of global climate change, demography, but shorter term, the financial crisis that continues, and the transition between these two horizons. There are large world problems, among them having to do with the tensions arising from a shifting global economy, as the rest of the world tries to come to terms with the rapid rise of China. There are those in the world who fear that the rise of China is taking jobs away from Americans. There are those who fear that in Africa, China will potentially start to own everything in the world's natural resources. There are those who fear that the rising China the rising China has already begun to show belligerence in South and East China. In the midst of all this, however, the glo continuing global financial crisis, the opposite fears also exist. At the same time that there are those who fear the rise of China, they also recognize that today, China is pretty much the only major player in the world with oh, a trillion euros or so to spend, potentially capable of placing those euros into a special investment vehicle to be constructed by the EFSF here in Europe for use in ring fencing Spain and Italy from Greek contagion and for use possibly in recapitalizing Europe's banks. Beyond these global fears, there are those who worry about what's happening within China. If China's rise does not continue, what does that do to the 1.3 billion people who are Chinese and who continue to seek rising incomes? They want to be, enjoy the same standard of living that other people in the world do. As if the rise of China were to be disrupted, what will happen to today's gender imbalance there, where Already, expectations are that very soon there will be 24 million more men than women in China. The, those, those who worry about the possibility of this disruption worry about how inequality in China has risen, but at the same time, it has been the single largest, most powerful force for reducing world poverty at a pace and in a fashion never before seen in the seven million years of human history. 
And for those of us who sit here in this room, we are worried that if China's growth gets disrupted, what's going to happen to our supply of iPhones and iPads and iPods? What will happen to how semiconductors will no longer be delivered to this country and elsewhere in the West? There will be fewer computers of every kind. The steady supply that we have come to rely on of trainers, of air conditioners, of refrigerators, solar panels, wind turbines, all of that will be disrupted. Now, it is not particularly novel to observe that the financial and banking system in China is important for sustaining its longer-run economic performance. Here, there in China, as of course everywhere else, we have been made painfully aware of these links between the financial system and the real economy. For China in particular, observers point out the stark absence of financial instrument alternatives available to its population. Observers point to the sharp centralized control over savings and financing options available in China. Observers openly worry about how these features might have distorted China's economy to where it might now be impossible to prevent a hard landing in China's growth as the economy there tries to rebalance towards domestic consumption and tries to slow down simultaneously runaway infrastructure investment and overinflated property and asset markets. This evening, we have Sir Thomas Harris speak to us on the role of a foreign bank in China. He will address these large issues in the context of his own rich experience. I can think of fewer people better qualified to help us think through these extremely difficult issues. Sir Thomas worked in the United States from 1999 to 2004 when he was the UK's Director General for Trade and Investment in the United States overall and British Council General in New York. Before then, he had served as British Ambassador in Korea from 1993 to 1997. He has served abroad in places as diverse as Japan and Nigeria. And of course, since 2004, he has been Vice Chairman of Standard Chartered Capital Markets Limited. Now, Standard Chartered has had a long history of engagement, not just with China in particular, or emerging markets more generally, but perhaps most importantly, with the London School of Economics. Standard Chartered is based in London, but it operates in over 75 countries. By some accounts, over 90% of Standard Chartered's profits come from emerging markets. Over the course of the 2008 global financial crisis, Standard Chartered was one of the very few multinational financial services companies that remained profitable. This conjuncture of where it does business how it remained profitable, and the 2008 financial crisis may lead some to think of what happened in 2008 not as a global financial crisis, but as a 2008 transatlantic financial crisis. Merged in 1969, Standard Chartered's two predecessors, Standard Bank and Chartered Bank, 
had been operating in India, China, and Africa since the mid-1800s. The link with the LSE shows up in yet other ways beyond Sir Thomas's presence here and his advisory role at Confucius Institute for Business here, in London, here at the LSE. From 1993, for about a decade, Sir Patrick Gillam served as executive chairman of Standard Chartered. A generous donation from Standard Chartered to the LSE has made possible both the annual Sir Patrick Gillam Lecture Series and the Sir Patrick Gillam Chair in International and Comparative Politics, a professorship occupied by Professor John Seidel of LSE's Government and International Relations Departments. Sir Thomas, this evening, will help us trace through some of these connections and then reflect on these large developments in China and the global economy. Sir Thomas. Well, thank you, Danny, for that extraordinarily wide-ranging introduction, and I couldn't possibly um, uh, match the expectations that he's uh, aroused, but I do hope that uh, some of the issues he's touched on will, if, will certainly not all be covered in my uh, remarks this evening, but I do hope we can get on to uh, a Q&A session and uh, come back to some of the important points that you've made. Um, let me start by uh, thanking the Confucius Institute of Business here in LSE for having invited me to, uh, to come and talk to you this evening. Um, and let me also express my great pleasure at uh, the fact that this event is taking place at LSE. As Danny has just explained, um, Standard Chartered has had a very long, cordial, close, fruitful relationship with LSE. And um, as he said, apart from our support for the Confucius Business Institute, um, the bank has provided financial sponsorship for the Sir Patrick Gillam Chair uh, in International and Comparative Politics. It does endow the annual Sir Patrick Gillam Lecture Series. Um, and Sir Patrick Gillam himself, for those of you who almost certainly won't be aware, he, he graduated from LSE in 1954, and he was made an honorary fellow at this school in 1999. Uh, he also, as Danny said, he served as chairman uh, of Standard Chartered Bank um, for about 10 years uh, and only retired from that position in 2003. And while he was chairman of our bank, he took a particular interest in our activities in China. That interest was, of course, not surprising given Chinese Recent, China's recent economic performance um, and the fact that uh, Standard Chartered is now uh, the oldest foreign bank in China with a continuous presence going back over 153 years. It was in August 1858 that the Chartered Bank of India, Australia and China, as it was then known, opened its branch in Shanghai. That was only a few months after our very first branches were opened in Calcutta and Bombay. And a year later, in the summer of 1859, uh, we opened another branch in Hong Kong. 
And what's interesting is that from the very beginning, um, this was a bank that was set up to facilitate trade and investment in Asia. Then, as now, the bank had no retail banking presence in the UK, a very unusual British bank. Now, in those days, um, before the introduction of steamships, the opening of the Suez Canal, or the laying of telegraph cables, the main competition in the Chinese financial market came from the commercial banks in India, which had agencies in China. Indeed, it wasn't until 1865, uh, seven years later, that what eventually became HSBC uh, was established in Hong Kong. And in those very early days, the managers of foreign banks operating in Asia uh, were hundreds of miles apart, unable to communicate with one another only through letters carried by sailing ships. Correspondence with London took at least six to eight weeks to reach Shanghai, and in times of financial stress, and believe it or not, there were financial crises uh, in uh, the 19th century as well as in the 21st century, assistance from the head office in London, or indeed from any other branches of the bank elsewhere in Asia, was very difficult. It wasn't until March 1870 that the first steamship reached Shanghai via the Suez Canal, and it was a year later uh, before telegraphic traffic became possible. Initially, the bank dealt primarily with a large volume of discounting of cotton and other bills of trade. In 1862, four years after we were set up, the Hong Kong authorities authorized the bank to start printing banknotes, and we remain a note issuer in Hong Kong until today. And soon after that, we also started uh, printing uh, foreign bank notes in Shanghai, though there we had much less success because the Chinese customs authorities, who were headed up by a very uh, hard-headed Brit, wouldn't accept banknotes. They insisted on having silver-based currency payment. And the subsequent fortunes of the bank in China uh, were directly linked to that last great period of globalization in Asia known as Pax Britannica. Shanghai and Hong Kong became the entrepôt centers for a network of trading and financial links with London and other Asian markets. A network of chartered bank branches were established throughout China as well as in other Asian ports such as Yokohama, Incheon, Manila, Singapore, Penang, etc. And Chartered Bank flourished in that period uh, by combining deep-rooted local knowledge with its international expertise and capabilities, and some things don't change. China, in the second half of the 19th century, was a center of a banking network for the bank, which continued to expand uh, right up until the Great Depression and the rise of Japanese imperialism. It wasn't until the 1930s that we really started having our first serious setbacks because the Japanese in the 1930s were overtly hostile to the position of Britain and its banks in the region. At first, that hostility um, was limited to ousting the bank from the territories that Japan controlled in Japan, Manchuria, Taiwan, and Korea. But at the outbreak of war 
at the end of 1941, virtually all chartered bank branches in China were taken over by the Japanese. A uh, hundred British staff were interned by the Japanese and 17 of them lost their lives. Thousands of our Chinese staff were dismissed and often left destitute. And by 1942, two-thirds of the bank's network in Asia had been lost. Its assets were wound up and transferred to Japanese banks nominated by the Japanese government, and only one branch was left in China, and that was in Chongqing, the wartime capital of the Chinese nationalist government. And the story of how the bank recovered uh, from that situation uh, from August 1945 is, is, is quite remarkable, and I, I, I can't this evening go into the details, but within a matter of months after the Japanese surrender, um, branches were reopened all across Asia, including in China, and, and, and they played a critical role in financing the restoration of post-war economic and trading links in the region. But, inevitably, the foreign banks were also associated in the minds of many Chinese uh, with the indignities that they had experienced during a century of Western domination. And it was therefore, I suppose, no surprise uh, that pretty soon uh, after the communist takeover in 1949, one of the very first steps taken um, was to nationalize virtually the whole banking industry in China, including all the foreign banks. Charter Bank was left with one representative office in Shanghai. Uh, but interestingly, that office remained open, thus enabling Standard Chartered to be the only bank uh, that can claim a continuous presence in China. Of course, in reality, uh, the only uh, extensive operation that we had uh, was in Hong Kong, where we continued to play our traditional role as one of the two major note-issuing banks in that market. And the restrictions on the ability of foreign banks to operate in a serious way in mainland China didn't really begin to ease until after the Cultural Revolution, when Deng Xiaoping cautiously allowed some foreign bank branches to reopen in Shanghai and to start to conduct foreign currency business. And by virtue of our precarious presence in Shanghai, we were among the first of the overseas banks to take advantage of that opening. Slowly, slowly, the restrictions on such operations were lifted, but the big breakthrough came relatively recently. It came only in December 2006, when as a result of the uh, commitments that China had entered into in its WTO accession negotiations, the banking regulations were amended so as to allow foreign banks to incorporate as local Chinese banks and, in theory, then to be given national treatment. In other words, to be treated uh, the same as Chinese banks. By that time, as, as, as Danny had said, we, we'd merged with the Standard Bank, which was primarily located in Africa to form the new Standard Chartered Bank, and we were the first foreign bank to apply in 2006 for local incorporation as a Chinese uh, bank. HSBC were soon after. Um, this was, of course, appropriate, given that, as I've said, we were the only foreign bank to be able to claim that unbroken history of operating in China through 150 years of good times and bad times. 
And these, in recent years, have undoubtedly been the good times for China as it liberalized its economy and re-emerged as one of the great economic and political powers. Uh, you all know unprecedented economic development has lifted literally hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty at home while, acting, uh, while the economy has acted as a motor uh, for global economic activities over the last decade. And as the private sector has been liberated from many constraints, setting free an enormous amount of entrepreneurial innovation, China, of course, has witnessed a massive growth in investment and rising living standards. Since the formal incorporation of Standard Chartered China in March 2007, our bank's presence in the market has virtually doubled every year, admittedly from a very, very low base. Today we have over 70 outlets in China, 18 branches, 51 sub-branches, I'll explain the difference if you're interested, and a village bank in Inner Mongolia. We now have over 5,000 uh, staff and a, a, a total which is constantly growing, and we are now one of the leading foreign banks in China. In 2010, the last full year of results, our revenues grew 23%, to 4.5 billion yuan. Our pre-tax profits rose 13% to 482 million yuan. Our client loans grew 30% to 95.6 billion yuan. That's about US $15 billion. While client deposits rose 58% in one year to 123 billion yuan. Now those last two figures for loans and deposits matter because one of the major challenges that the foreign banks faced when they started to incorporate in 2007 was a, a regulatory schedule laid down by the People's Bank of China that they would have to have a loan deposit ratio below a 75% maximum within a relatively short period of time. And given the difficulties of collecting deposits with a very limited branch network, and in a market where interest rates are fixed, that was quite a challenge. And the fact that our bank last year achieved a loan deposit ratio of 72% by 2010 was for us a major achievement. But to keep these figures in perspective, it's also worth pointing out that even after now 30 years since Deng Xiaoping started that first cautious opening up, the bulk of China's economy is still state-owned, and the Central Bank of China has estimated that the total asset size of all the foreign banks operating in China at the end of 2010 represented only 1.85% of all bank assets in China. That was indeed lower than the 2.4% share that the foreign banks had achieved in 2007. In other words, foreign banks still operate essentially on the margins of the Chinese economy. The bulk of corporate, government and household finance continues to be provided by these enormous state-owned banks which are now among the largest in the world. These are the financial institutions which the Chinese government used to stimulate domestic demand after the global <coughs> transatlantic financial crisis in 2008. These are the banks which still underpin the financing of China's massive infrastructure program 
and these are the banks used to support the state-owned enterprises, which still account for about 50% of GDP. So, given how small the foreign bank share of the market still is in China, what is their role? What is our role in Standard Chartered? And I want to um, suggest that there are five major functions. The first is to help the Chinese authorities as they continue to carry out fundamental reform of their banking system. Until the late 1990s, China's state-owned banks engaged in large-scale policy lending. This was aimed at providing subsidized capital to sectors of the economy which were deemed to be uh, essential to meet the government's economic objectives. Credit, in other words, was allocated by central government direction rather than the use of risk management systems by the banks. And non-performing loans, people not paying back their money, uh, became endemic, particularly in the 1990s. And by 1999, the big four state-owned banks uh, were, had to be relieved of a significant proportion of these debts, which were mostly from the poorly performing state-owned enterprises. Henceforth, the big four state-owned banks, which accounted for well over 60% of the banking uh, sector, were encouraged to provide finance on a more commercial basis. And a wave of restructuring took place 10 years ago, uh, and particularly in 2004-05, the banks had to clean up their books um, and the regulators had to put them on a um, more proper commercial footing. Now, those reforms mattered because the Chinese uh, financial system is still overly reliant on banks and bank lending. Uh, in response to the global financial crisis of 2008, the provision of credit by the state-owned banks was used as an alternative to the fiscal stimulus programs that we saw in the West. Over 60% of China's financial stock is still held in the banking system compared with 30% in the Eurozone, 20% in the USA. Such a high ratio is unusual for a country at China's stage of economic development. And while there is now a massive but volatile equity market in China, China still lacks a liquid corporate bond market or most of the hedging and derivative products which will be used elsewhere to mitigate risk. It also matters to Chinese citizens. Um, savings in the corporate, household and government sectors have amounted to almost half Chinese GDP, but for want of alternative investment opportunities, Chinese savers have left their deposits in a banking system which offers them very low returns on their savings. The Chinese authorities are well aware of these problems and of the need to slowly shift uh, from investment to higher levels of domestic consumption. And while they still maintain very firm caps on the ability of foreigners to invest in Chinese banks, they have encouraged the major state-owned uh, entities to form partnerships with major international banks so they can benefit from their expertise and experience. The Standard Chartered Bank, for example, has formed a strategic business cooperation arrangement with the Agricultural Bank of China, which incidentally this week has produced some stunning results. Not all state-owned banks are the same, as you will have read to some of you in the Financial Times today. Um, but we're also the sole foreign strategic investor uh, 
with 19.9% uh, of the equity in Bohai Bank, which is a new national bank uh, headquartered in Tianjin. The 12th five-year plan approved by the People's Congress in March this year seeks a fundamental shift in China's economic policy by greater emphasis on equitable wealth distribution, improved social infrastructure, and increased domestic consumption. And the plan explicitly calls for the development of small to medium-sized financial institutions, the creation of a debenture market, more private equity, and the possibility of introducing asset securitization on a stable basis. These are all areas where I would suggest foreign banks in China have considerable expertise. So Standard Chartered and the other foreign banks are therefore able to offer their experience in other markets to help the authorities with these reforms. Um, for example, just one example has been the great deal of work which has been done with the regulators on systems which allow Chinese firms to raise capital beyond uh, traditional bank lending or raising of equity. The scope uh, for cooperation in the development of China's capital markets is vast and Standard Chartered has worked closely with the Chinese authorities and the British Treasury in providing guidance and support. And we believe that a properly sequenced and, and a series of careful steps could make an enormous difference to the development of a corporate bond market in China, uh, particularly lifting the restrictions on commercial banks underwriting, distributing, and trading corporate bonds. This, in turn, uh, would allow insurance companies and pension funds to invest in corporate bonds and other long tenor financial instruments which are badly needed in China as it faces the challenge of a rapidly aging population. A second role for a foreign bank like Standard Chartered is to facilitate uh, the explosion in Chinese trade and investment in third markets. Unlike the domestic state-owned Chinese banks, Standard Chartered has an extensive international banking network. Uh, we employ 85,000 staff in 1,400 branches in over uh, 75 different markets around the world. So we're therefore well-placed to leverage that global presence to the benefit of our Chinese corporate clients who are seeking to expand overseas. Uh, this is particularly true of the new South-South trade corridors which have emerged as Chinese business penetrates other emerging markets in Asia, the Middle East and Africa. And by combining deep-rooted local knowledge with its international expertise and capabilities, the bank has been well-placed uh, to assist China um, as its firms seek to globalize their business um, overseas. I've got some examples here of uh, how we have done that, but I think in the interest of time I will skip those and go on to the third factor. The bank can play a critical role meeting the financial needs of those who would otherwise find it difficult to secure credit in the domestic market. Because one of the strange things about China is that although it has this vast banking industry, that industry works extremely well for large state-owned and private enterprises, but it doesn't work very well for the many small Chinese firms who face difficulties accessing credit other than in the informal curb market. Many of you will have read uh, the recent media 
uh, reports of some of the difficulties that have arisen in some Chinese cities um, as uh, the squeeze on the informal, the black uh, uh, credit markets um, has begun to uh, bite. Now, since 2003, we've been providing dedicated banking services to support Chinese SMEs, and we've introduced a number of new service models uh, to provide those smaller, medium-sized companies with a, a range of financing, foreign exchange, hedge, investment, and other trade services. Um, we've been very pleased that we've received uh, awards for SME lending for the last five years, um, right through the global financial crisis. Another of the consequences of the dramatic economic growth in China in recent decades has been the explosion in the number of middle-income and wealthy Chinese citizens. China had 230 million middle-income residents in 2009, about 30%, 37% of its total urban population, and the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences has recently forecast that that number will double again over the next decade. Our own forecasts in Standard Chartered estimate that income per head in China uh, could well rise from the current uh, over $4,000 in 2010 uh, to over $21,000 in 2030. Now, that's a, an astonishing transformation. It's a transformation that's similar to what was experienced in Taiwan and Korea. But of course, it's unprecedented in scale because China is such, such, such a bigger uh, country. And this vast new Chinese middle class is going to demand access to the sort of wealth management products and personal financial services which have been hitherto unavailable in the market. And a bank which has a reputation for international standards of governance and integrity is well placed to meet those demands. Those massive increases in deposits that we've been achieving in the last few years um, are a reflection, I think, of our growing reputation uh, as a bank and, of course, the growing demand from wealthy Chinese. My fourth factor is that China's economic growth is going to lead to further efforts to secure energy and commodity resources overseas to sustain forecast levels of growth. And that's a perfectly rational response. We did the same during our period of rapid economic development. As a bank which has a strong presence and deep historical roots in both Asia and Africa, uh, Standard Chartered has been very well placed to help Chinese companies seize the opportunities resulting from increased trade flows between particularly Africa and um, uh, China, uh, and particularly in the energy, mining, and power sectors. And we've been helping Chinese corporations look to develop their overseas business with financial advice about the local infrastructure and credit environment. My fifth and final factor is that a bank like Standard Chartered, which aims, and this is our stated objective, to be the best international bank in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, simply has to have a presence in one of the world's fastest growing economies. As per capita income levels continue to increase, 
So an emerging market like China will develop a need for more and more sophisticated financial products. As the population gets older, so will increase the move into collective investments such as pension, life insurance and mutual funds. Now we reckon that China's share of the global equity market capitalization will grow from 7% last year to 25% in 2030. That means a staggering increase from $4,195 billion to $79,000 billion by 2030. China's debt markets will increase from a nominal $4,770 billion in 2009 to over $89,000 billion in 2030. Those are staggering increases, much, much faster than GDP growth. Um, and perhaps in the Q&A we can talk about why that is. Why is it that demand for banking, equity, bond markets will increase at a, um, an exponential rate as China's per capita income goes up? A recent report by PwC has forecast that China will overtake the United States to have the biggest banking sector in the world by 2023. Now that's 20 years sooner than PwC had previously predicted. To be fair, one of the factors behind that is not so much the growth of the Chinese banking sector as um, PwC's much more pessimistic view about the future of the Western uh, banking system. But is it any wonder that we see China as an essential component of our global strategy? So against that background, let me finish by looking to the future, because I think there will be two significant but contradictory factors at work. The first is regulatory. There's, there's no point in denying that there con continue to be a significant number of restrictions imposed on the ability of banks in China, which impede their ability um, to grow the business. Uh, let me just give you one example. China does not permit foreign banks to transfer data to global processing hubs located elsewhere. Now, while ostensibly applying to all banks, of course, this rule has a particularly damaging effect on international banks which have cross-border IT systems. And com by compelling them to duplicate those IT systems and to maintain their servers in China, the rules significantly reduce efficiency and cut China off from the benefits of cross-border electronic communications. The development of fast, efficient and cost-effective electronic communication networks has been a major factor in the development of the global financial services industry and attempts to isolate China from that system could well impede the next phase of economic development. And one doesn't have to look very far in Asia to see an example of another major Asian country that also once experienced very rapid growth, also experienced a phenomenal growth in domestic savings, but then failed to accompany this with the removal of barriers to foreign investment. In the UK, foreign and direct investment accounts for roughly 45% of our GDP. In Japan, it represents about 3%. In little more than a decade, that country, Japan, moved from being hailed as an economic miracle to having the slowest growth rate of all the G7 countries. 
and its market for financial services was so heavily regulated that it cost it the chance of becoming Asia's global financial centre. This failure has to be contrasted with the benefits experienced by those Asian countries that embraced liberalisation and open markets. Vibrant and efficient economies like Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong have all removed uh, their discriminatory investment restrictions and now uh, openly welcome foreign investors. The second factor which is going to affect the future is economic. And those are the steps that the Chinese authorities are now taking to open up use of the renminbi for cross-border trade settlement and to encourage renminbi-denominated bond issuance in Hong Kong. Deregulation by the Chinese authorities in the last year or so have seen offshore renminbi deposits grow from 100 billion yuan to 572 billion yuan, and they're predicted to grow within two years to 1 trillion yuan. Now, Standard Chartered has been pioneering renminbi services to its corporate and financial clients. It was the first bank to offer two-way renminbi cross-border trade settlement. We were the first bank to issue a, a renminbi corporate bond, as it happened. It was for McDonald's in Hong Kong, and to provide renminbi services to clients now in over 30 overseas markets. We've since issued so-called dim sum bonds for such different clients as Volkswagen and Tex uh, Tesco. By the second quarter of this year, 7% of China's trade had already been re-denominated in renminbi. And we expect that proportion to expand very rapidly as the Chinese authorities move cautiously towards their ultimate goal of making their currency truly international. But to achieve that aim, they are going to require the active cooperation of the international banks like Standard Chartered, who are well placed uh, by virtue of their position in financing global trade uh, to provide the conduit for such a transformation. And over the last year, we've been in active discussion with the Chinese authorities, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and more recently the British Treasury, on how best to meet Chinese aspirations. We've already, we are already one of the key players in the development of the offshore um, Hong Kong renminbi market, and more recently we've been in discussions over the development of London as a renminbi centre. I think many of you will be aware uh, that at the beginning of uh, September, uh, the British and Chinese authorities met in the Economic and Financial Dialogue uh, and agreed, in principle, that London should be developed as a global hub for renminbi trading, taking uh, advantage of London's unique location in a time zone which overlaps both with Hong Kong and New York. And it was agreed that the two sides will work together to support that development, and, and certainly we will be playing a central part in those discussions. Now, I began this lecture by referring to Standard Chartered's history with our origins in China over 150 years ago. Then, China was almost certainly the largest single economy in the world, followed by the UK. And it's fascinating to imagine how China might look 150 years from now. If it sustains its current pace of growth for even a few more decades, China will once again be the largest economy in the world. And if China's authorities continue their really very impressive record of macroeconomic management, uh, Shanghai should become the world's largest financial center. Chinese companies will surely become leaders in industries and technologies which are as yet unknown. 
But to achieve this destiny and to re-emerge as the world's economic powerhouse, China has got to avoid Japan's mistakes and to embrace openness and liberalization. And this, I would suggest, includes recognizing that the national domicile of companies is ultimately irrelevant to their success. Globalization is not about promoting national champions, it's about giving consumers the benefit of international competition. It's about creating an environment in which companies flourish regardless of their nationality. Wimbledon is the world's finest tennis tournament, not because it's British, but because it attracts the world's best players who compete on an equal basis. And I confidently expect China to continue to attract the world's best companies to help it continue uh, to turn its economic promise into reality. I'm confident that China will avoid the mistakes of Japan, which by discriminating against foreign investors and operators, failed to use that vast pool of domestic savings to establish a genuinely open international financial market. China's regulatory authorities had the opportunity through the gradual removal of discriminatory regulations to allow Shanghai to become the global financial center that Tokyo failed to become. It can do this, as I say, by embracing openness and liberalization and creating an environment where national ownership of the players in the market is less important than their contribution to economic performance. This is in China's interests, because as it continues to liberalize and as its economy continues to flourish, so we can expect those giant Chinese banks to become um, key players in other financial centers where they too will seek non-discriminatory treatment. They too will rightly argue that they can contribute a great deal in other financial markets if only they are treated equally. So I look forward to that day when the distinction uh, between a domestic and a foreign-owned bank in China becomes irrelevant, as indeed I believe it has already become in London. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for uh, listening to me, and uh, I'm very happy that we can have some Q&A. Thank you, Sir Thomas, for a most interesting lecture. He has, Sir Thomas has given us a magisterial overview of China's financial history, and indeed, Standard Chartered's financial history, going back 150 years. He has brought us up to the present with the most recent statistics and developments in China's financial markets, the role that Standard Chartered and other financial banks might play in that ongoing development. And then finally, he's given us a bit of, over, over, a bit of insight into his own thinking on how the future might play out, what obstacles remain, and what must be done to overcome these obstacles. I think that um, we can take questions in groupings, so that, if we may, that way we'll take questions in threes or so, and I wonder if I can exercise Chair's prerogative and ask you a first question oh, before dear. we oh, take on the other, uh, the other questions. What do you make 
of the Chinese political leadership's worries on possible economic and financial instabilities with too rapid a liberalization of the renminbi market. Okay, and then a question from in back. Uh, hello, my name is Max Rewall. I'm an LSE alumni. Uh, you touched upon it already, but then decided not to go in detail in the interest of time. But could you still uh, tell us a little bit about which ways Standard Chartered uses to uh, help Chinese businesses expand in Africa? Thank you. Okay, China and Africa. We'll take another question before we turn over. Question from over here on this side. Um, hello, Matthew Cornell, uh, come across from SOAS. Uh, just a question on the renminbi, you touched on it a couple of times now. I just wonder what you think the prospects are for it in the future as, as a reserve currency uh, in the way that the euro has been a, a wee bit and, and obviously the dollar is, uh, and maybe in terms of timescales or, or volumes. Uh, that's my question, thank you. Okay, very good. The renminbi as a world reserve currency. So, Sir Thomas. Well, Danny, let me start with your question, um, which I think is very at and I think is an accurate description of the attitude um, of the Chinese authorities. They, they do move forward uh, by feeling their way from stone to stone um, in the riverbed. And I think that's very sensible. I mean, given the scale of the uh, challenges that they face uh, in trying to bring about the transformation of uh, uh, the Chinese economy, they would be foolhardy if they were to have a big bang, if they were just to scrap all regulation and let market forces um, rage. I think their fears of um, uh, political and economic stability um, are very real. And it's what is impressive about the way the regulators have, uh, have moved forward is that it has been sequenced and very carefully thought out. The Chinese um, authorities spend an awful lot of time um, listening. They listen, they come to London, they come to New York, they listen, they ask questions. They will make a tentative step forward. They'll see, they'll test the market, they'll see how it goes. Um, and I don't think they can be criticised for that. I think it's a, it's a system which has served them uh, well, which, if I may, I'll link with your question with the question about remember, because I think exactly the same attitude uh, will prevail over um, the renminbi. There is no doubt in my mind that the ultimate Chinese aspiration is that the renminbi will be an international trading currency, that it will be um, a reserve currency. Uh, that is what they would like, for a variety of different reasons, not least the, to reduce the, their dependence and the global dependence on the US dollar. But exactly the same approach. They are taking this cautiously. Um, and you sometimes read in the press you know, projections from uh, commentators saying, oh, the renminbi will be a convertible currency by... 2000 and 
14 and you know it'll be a um, it'll be then available in the foreign currency reserves of the world I do not believe it I think the, the Chinese authorities um, are feeling their way what has happened so far is given the starting point is absolutely dramatic we have seen an explosion in remember denominated bonds we've been seeing a uh, an explosion of um, uh, remembi uh, trade finance, but the fundamental protections around the Chinese market remain. This is not a convertible currency. The Chinese maintain strict capital accounts uh, between mainland China and Hong Kong, uh, the rest of the world. I mean, just was it a week or so ago, they announced that they would permit foreign investors in China to use renminbi provided that they could prove uh, that they obtained that legally and through the officially approved systems in Hong Kong. What they're not going to do is to allow uncontrolled flows of capital uh, across their borders. So I think it'll happen. Uh, I think China is simply too big an economy uh, for it not to happen and as as they continue to uh, allow a degree of market flexibility and the value of their currency as they continue slowly, slowly, slowly to remove the uh, barriers on the use of the renminbi. They are moving towards that ultimate objective, but I think it'll take much longer than most people think. Uh, the question about China in Africa. Well, there's a whole variety of different uh, ways. I mean, the, the example I was going to quote, but I realized I was taking up too much time, was a deal we did with Huawei, the um, enormous uh, Chinese telecoms equipment manufacturer, um, where we were able um, to offer them some uh, groundbreaking um, facilities uh, in Africa to, um, to uh, help with receivables um, to to provide them with structured trade finance. But some of our biggest Chinese clients in Africa have been the Chinese oil companies. We have worked very closely now for oh, quite a number of years with those Chinese companies that have been making investments in places like Angola and uh, East Africa. There we have a comparative advantage. There is somebody sitting in this audience who used to work for HSBC and knows much more about China than I do. But one of the one of the I, Claire will I think acknowledge one of the disadvantages that HSBC have. They have a fantastic bank, tough competition. But the one thing they lack in their armory, they do not have a decent presence in Africa. The only other British bank which has got a decent presence in Africa is Barclays, and they don't have a decent presence in China. Mm. So we have got a unique competitive advantage uh, in that area. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong question. Whoever the gentleman was who asked me about Africa. Um, and we follow our clients. I mean, actually, one of, uh, uh, one of the reasons we've opened up business in Angola is because that's where our Chinese um, clients want us uh, to be. We're now in, I think, 15 uh, markets in Africa, um, partly, not entirely, partly, uh, because that's where our Chinese clients want us to be. Excellent. Right in the heart of the Africa-China development. Yeah. Put your money in SC. Right, next round of questions. So the gentleman here, and then over there. So first of all. Hi, so Harry's um, 
you went on lens to talk about your uh, standard charters uh, helping the growth of SME and consumer sector in China. And then given the uh, near credit event in, in the Eurozone and in the United States, uh, and that will uh, eventually have a knock-on effect on the trade SMEs and consumer sector in China. In the absence of uh, an effective uh, credit bureau and uh, individual bankruptcy law, uh, does the potential rising impairment keeps you awake in the night? And my my second question is re related to your uh, your comments on uh, if my if I quote it correctly, uh, the domicile uh, the national domicile of a company is not necessarily related to the success of the company, and does it implies given uh, the financial sectors uh, to GDP national GDP ratio is so commonly quoted as a justification for financial regulations, your company is considering uh, uh, relocate your headquarters back to China. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was two questions. Yeah. <laughs> yes, hello, my name is Justin Merlin. Uh, first, thank you very much for your lecture. Um, in the discussion surrounding the uh, Basel 3 tree, you often heard the argument that uh, the high uh, core capital ratio they require lowers their competitiveness. And to that background, I was wondering what the ratio is in China, the required ratio, and what do you think, how do you think about that? Can we also take Claire's question before we turn over? This is a real expo on China. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry. I hope this isn't a horrible question to ask you, Tom. Um, picking up on the point that the gentleman over there raised, I thought your comment about borderless banking was great and really interesting. Um, maybe Standard Chartered is the best bank to answer this, given that you don't have a retail banking network in the UK. But given the too-big-to-fail debate that's going on in the global banking industry at the moment, and the fact that the argument has been made for breaking up global banks, like my erstwhile employer, HSBC, and separating the functions of the bank, I'm very interested in your comments about how you see a global bank evolving Obviously, within China, the roles of the banks are very strongly segregated and have been so, to some extent, successfully, unlike in the US. Um, and I wonder how you see that vision evolving. Do you think that the ring fencing, for instance, that's under discussion in the UK, is going to be helpful or unhelpful in that process? And if you did see a model of borderless banks, under what model could you see that? developing, if that's not too difficult to question, you can no, probably do a no, separate no, no, lecture no, no. on it, but any thoughts on Right, come on, no more questions, I shall forget <laughs> the, the, the yes. Right, um, the first question about the impact of the Eurozone crisis on some of our Chinese clients, you're absolutely right, China is not immune to the repercussions, if there were to be a collapse of the Eurozone, many, many Chinese uh, companies would feel the direct, let alone the indirect, effects. So every good bank has sleepless nights worrying about impairment. That's one of the secrets of success, is to have effective risk management systems in place. 
Um, and I know every bank says they've got good risk management and we get to a crisis and we find that some banks have extraordinarily poor risk management systems. All, all I would say is that the degree of underfunding by the formal banking system for SMEs in China is such that we can cherry pick. We can take on the strongest and the best managed and the ro most ro robust SMEs. Are any of them going to fail? Of course. You know, we're taking risks every time we make a loan, every time we lend you money on your credit card, we're taking uh, a risk. But I like to think that because we can cherry pick our clients, um, we can keep the risks under control. Um, your second question was about um, national domicile and, I, 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 and whether or not um, banks, um, the banking system represents too high a proportion of uh, GDP. The point I'm trying to make about national domicile is that the most successful global financial centres are those that don't worry about national domicile. Um, I honestly can put my hand on my heart and I say that in London there is no discrimination on grounds of nationality. Um, the JP Morgans, the China Construction Bank, the Deutsche Bank, um, Societe Generale, I mean all these banks operate on a level playing field. Now there's a second order question, collectively does the financial uh, sector represent too large a proportion of the, um, the UK economy? I don't believe so. I think you know the evidence is absolutely clear that this is a sector which, thanks to international involvement, is one where Britain has a clear comparative advantage. You've only got to look at you know the taxes that are generated from the financial services industry more than pay, for example, for the total education system in, in Britain, just, just from the financial services industry. The £45 billion surplus that financial services earn on the balance of payments, no other sector in the British economy even begins um, to match that degree of international competitiveness. And for people to suggest that we should quite consciously um, um, seek to um, reduce the scale of that industry is, to my mind, absolutely bonkers. I don't hear the French going around saying we're going to reduce the role of agriculture in the French economy because they can only survive with massive subsidies from taxpayers. I don't see the Germans going around saying, oh, we're going to impose a automotive transactions tax um, because, uh, you know, uh, we produce too many cars in Europe. And I think, you know, I, well, I've said my piece. Um, <laughs> Basel III, um, well, of course, the Europeans are moving uh, more rapidly uh, than any other um, part of the G20 to implement uh, Basel III and what's interest there's an interesting debate of row if you like going on between London and Brussels 
over whether in addition to the uh, tier one capital requirements laid down in Basel III, the British authorities should have the freedom to impose yet higher capital requirements. And there's a ding-dong going on with the uh, Commission about that. Now, we don't see anything like the same enthusiasm for Basel III in other parts of the world. Uh, although, in theory, everybody's signed up to it. I mean, the Americans haven't even implemented Basel II, let alone Basel uh, III. Um, yes, of course, banks have got to be well capitalised. We cannot have a situation in which, particularly in times of um, turbulence, they are undercapitalised. Um, we, we have no difficulties about meeting the requirements. You know, we can we can and we have gone out to the market, we can raise money uh, relatively easy. It's not true for all banks. But don't forget that capital is only part of the problem. Most of the banks which collapsed in the 2008 crisis did not collapse because they were undercapitalized. They collapsed because of liquidity challenges. Northern Rock was fully capitalized. Lehman Brothers was fully capitalized. They still went bust just as there are European banks today who are, they can show you tier one capital, but my God, they're suffering because they can't borrow anything on the wholesale markets. So liquidity is just as, if not more important uh, than uh, capital. As far as Claire's question is concerned, yeah, well, in a sense, the uh, uh, Independent Banking Commission proposals don't affect us directly because we don't have a, a retail presence in the UK. We don't um, uh, face the prospect that Barclays and HSBC and Lloyds and so on face of having their retail and their investment banking operations split. But that doesn't mean to say that we don't have views on the subject. And I'm afraid uh, our view is that this is going down the wrong direction. We don't believe that you make the system more secure by fragmenting it, by balkanizing it. And by balkanizing it, I mean both in terms of function and in terms of geogra geography. One of the terrible effects of the crisis has been that regulators around the world are saying, we want to get our arms around our local banks in some cases as in the UK not only get our arms around the local banks and cut them off from the rest of their system um, but actually break them up I think both HSBC and Standard Chartered Bank demonstrated during the crisis that actually having a global network and having a diversity of banking activities enabled you to absorb shock much better than if you were highly limited in terms of your geographical product um, scope. Most of the banks which went bust in the UK were Alliance and Leicester, Bradford and Bingley, um, you name them. They were pure retail banks. Okay, Didn't save them from going bust. Um, whereas both HSBC and Standard Chartered Bank had a range of wholesale and retail banking and had a geographical spread which meant that they were shock absorbers, not shock transmitters. And, yeah, we're not going to be directly affected, but are we worried about the signal it's sending to regulators elsewhere? You bet your life we are. Mm 
because we think, frankly, it's the wrong direction uh, we're going down. Does that answer your question? Right. Okay, excellent. So very thought-provoking comments from Sir Thomas. I hope that some of the audience might want to follow up on, on these remarks. How, um, how you know, a robust defense of the financial sector and its contribution to the UK economy. How the core capital requirements in Basel III and other thinking, other regulatory thinking, uh, might actually be headed in the wrong direction because liquidity matters as much if not more than just capitalization and how the too-big-to-fail argument in its push for balkanization of the banking system is actually pushing us in the wrong direction. So robust and, and thought-provoking views. Uh, next round of questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let the poor devils go. I mean, <laughs> why should they suffer? Oh, there are more questions. I haven't had enough. <laughs> no, so, okay. So, Jack, and then in back, and then up again, friends. So. Right. Uh, thank you, Professor Kwa. And St. Harris, I have, um, may I ask whether if you could tell us a little bit more on the third role of the bank? For example, what do you think is the exact reasons why this large um, credit went to the stay-on enterprises relative to, to oh. the private enterprises? And uh, given the fact that the credit plan was actually officially abolished in late 90s in China, and also the big banking reforms have seen in the past. And uh, secondly, how do you see the foreign banks can get around these um, factors which can encourage lending directly to the private enterprises? Thank you. Okay, then in back. Hi, thanks for taking my question. You've, you've painted a very optimistic picture of sort of a gentle liberalization of the Chinese financial sector and the internationalization of the renminbi. And I think the one sort of point you're concerned about is that that liberalization process might stop because of tentativeness of fears of the Chinese government and their regulators. What else could go wrong here? And then we'll take just one more, and then we might, as you say, I'll, then I'll turn it over to you, and if, it looks like we might be out of time, but I know that there remain other questions. So, the gentleman in front here. Hello. Um, I was wondering about the role of um, sort of a branch network which you have when you say up against people like the Agriculture Bank of China, which I believe have around 30,000 branches in China. You said why you've got really impressive growth rates, 70. Um, I was just wondering, <laughs> just wondering um, what you thought about the role of the branch in China. Yeah. Okay. Um, to try and answer the first question. Um, while there has been um, a considerable change in the way in which the state-owned banks are managed, um, they are still used by the central government as an instrument of macroeconomic policy. So when it looked as if China might have a serious dip after the Lehman crisis, let's call it the Lehman crisis, yeah, okay. so let's blame, yes, the, let's blame yes. the Americans. Um, it was quite interesting that the, the, um, the response was not as in Britain or Korea or, 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 or America 
through a fiscal stimulus program, it was through putting pressure on the state-owned banks to open the floodgates for more credit. And even though the, um, the over-cosy relationships that we saw in the 1990s have probably gone, I, I suspect that there is now a much more um, hard-headed relationship. The fact remains that lending to state-owned enterprises is dead easy. Go back to the question about SMEs. You know, they've got an implicit guarantee from the government. We've known these guys for years. Um, we, we, um, so when the, when the government tells us to open the the, the, the the taps and make more credit, what is easier than to lend to the state-owned enterprises that we've worked with, we know, and the the credit risk seems to be relatively. Uh, under control. So the fact is that most of the lending by the state-owned banks goes to state-owned enterprises and the larger private companies. The guys who get the short end of the stick are those little firms, and there are hundreds of thousands of them, that can't get access to credit. And traditionally they've been forced to go to the informal market and there is a, an informal curb market, as you know, where there are unregulated and often very high interest rates uh, demanded um, to, to get financing. That's, as the gentleman there rightly said, that's much more risky. Um, and what we've seen this year is some indications that that market is under, under strain. Um, I may have misremembered the question about how do foreign banks get round the restrictions. It's not so much get round the restrictions. Um, it's just that, as you rightly um, suggest, the foreign banks are, as I said in my talk, they, they are working essentially on the margins. I mean, when you when the total foreign bank presence in China is less than two percent of bank assets, I like to think we can play a constructive. Um, a role in China, but I'm not under any illusions uh, that uh, at our current stage of development, and by our, I mean all the foreign banks, um, we are going to have a significant uh, macroeconomic impact in China. But for the reasons I spelled out in my talk, I think there are particular niches, particular types of activity where we do add something uh, to China. Um, all I would say, yes, we've only got 70 branches. I think HSBC, Claire, have now got 100 and something. Um, it's, it's tiny, but my God, compared with where we were five years ago, it is an enormous change. And it's a big challenge when we, and I'm sure HSBC, we have virtually doubled our staff every year in China since 2006, since the incorporation. That's a big, big headache. Um, we started off being able to tap um, our human capital in Hong Kong. A lot of, um, of course, we recruit like mad, but you can't, you can't. There are limits to the number of really experienced, trustworthy bankers that are available in China. After all, people of my generation in China 
um, or went through the Cultural Revolution. They, they didn't even get an education, let alone become skilled bankers. In our case, we acquired a big bank in Taiwan. We got 6,000 people in Taiwan. That's another source of skill. But just coping with a doubling of size each year is a big management challenge. What else can go wrong on, on liberalization? Well, that brings us to the debate that Danny touched on right at the very beginning. Um, is China headed for a hard landing or a, a soft landing? The pessimists um, would say there are signs um, of things going wrong. The local authority, the, there are massive local authority debts in China, something like 35% of GDP represented by um, the debts accumulated by local authorities, often in special purpose vehicles. Um, question, are they going to be able to repay um, those debts um, when there are signs that the real estate bubble has been pricked? in their determination to get inflation under control. Uh, interest rates, of course, have gone up. Credit has been uh, tightened. And one of the things that all observers of the China scene are looking at very, very carefully is what is going to be the impact on the real estate market. Because the local authorities, hitherto, have been able to raise money relatively easily because, essentially, the transfer of land from agricultural to commercial has been the source of their funding. So the pessimists would say there's a real risk of, um, um, of a downturn, particularly if you um, couple that with a, a much more challenging external environment. We're not pessimists. I mean, you're right. We, we recognise that these problem, there are problems. We recognise that the, um, uh, the growth rate is likely uh, to come down from the giddy heights of the last few years. But come down to what? We think by first half of next year, we may be down uh, to something like seven and a half, eight percent, which by you know any other standard is absolutely phenomenal. And we think the, um, the authorities' anti-inflation policies are going to work. We're seeing some signs uh, that inflation is now getting under control. Um, we think the authorities are sufficiently aware of the risks that they will act if they see um, uh, things going uh, wrong. So we shall see. But um, I think the track record of the uh, Chinese government in dealing with, you know, sort of juggling balls in the air, I mean, you know, just an extraordinary um, uh, problem, you know, dealing with this vast economy growing 8% with so many um, different. Um, possibilities of things going wrong I think it's been a, you know, an extraordinary achievement so for what it's worth, yes, you're right we're in the glasses half full not the half empty um, camp um, Okay, thank you, I think in the interest of time I'm going to have to call this to a close, I know that there were questions from the last round I'm not going to be able to get to but um, before, the, before I close up this evening I'd first like to just thank the audience for your patience and for your really very interesting questions. Yeah. And then, of course, if the audience could join me in thanking Sir Thomas for a most interesting, exciting, and thought-provoking evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.